The title of my sermon is Exodus to Evangelization. Exodus to Evangelization. And we started out by talking about um, last week how uh, Stephen, the very first martyr, was was persecuted uh, for his Christian faith. And uh, the the persecution that took place there in Jerusalem was uh, one of the key things that scattered the believers out across um, out across the city and into Judea and, and Jerusalem. And so we're going to pick up with kind of the fallout of what took place after Stephen's martyrdom at the beginning of chapter 8. So turn with me there to Acts chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. The scripture says, Saul agreed with putting him, talking about Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles, were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you would take your word this morning and apply it to our hearts. Father, I pray you would teach us the things that you have for us corporately and perhaps even individually that you want to teach us today, God. I pray your word would strengthen us where we need it, God, would encourage us where we need it, Lord, would humble us, would lift us up, would do your work according to your way. Thank you for your love for us. We pray that your spirit would guide us into truth because your word, Father, is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, I was, um, I was visiting a friend. I was sitting out on the front porch, and uh, when I sat down, there was a bowl uh, in the hands of uh, a friend there on the porch, and uh, they tossed me this little green bulb, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not much of a gardener or anything like that, and so I didn't exactly know what they were tossing me. They tossed me this little bulb, and they said, here, be careful with it. And I said, well, what am I holding? What is it? And they explained to me that, that the technical name of this little bulb was an impatient, but a lot of folks called these touch-me-nots. And I said, well, why do they call it a, a touch-me-not? And they said, well, squeeze it, and you'll see and so I squeeze this little green bulb, and out falls all these black seeds all in my lap, all in my hands on the floor. And they said, you need to be careful with those. And I said, well, why does it matter what these little seeds do? He said, wherever these seeds land, he said, wherever they fall, he said, it won't be long before you're going to see these touch-me-not flowers springing up. He said, you see that yard over there? He said, if you toss all these seeds out in the yard... He said, we're going to have flowers all over the, the, the front yard there. These touch-me-not flowers. And so his son heard what was going on. And uh, just being the, the, the rascal that he was, he reached in the, in the bowl and he grabbed this handful of bulbs. And there was a ceiling fan up above on this outdoor porch. And so he reached in and grabbed a handful of bulbs, this eight-year-old boy, and threw them up into the ceiling fan. And the fan hits these bulbs and these seeds scatter everywhere. And so the dad turns and looks at the son and kind of gave him this look like, did you really just do what I think you just did? Uh, and the little boy kind of laughed and, you know, took off running and uh, wasn't a big deal or anything of that nature, but it was really funny. We had seeds in our hair, seeds in our pockets, seeds in our laps on the floor in the grass. They were everywhere. 
But in studying this passage this week, it got me to thinking that essentially the story of the early church is the story of that front porch visit that day. That when those bulbs were tossed into the air, when they hit the fan, uh, so to speak, they were cast everywhere. And wherever they landed, uh, this kind of revolution of of flowers began to spring up. That's essentially what happened with the early church in the book of Acts when we get to chapter 8. Because Stephen's murder was a lot like those bulbs hitting the fan and bursting and scattering. And in fact, when you look at the letters of uh, Peter and James in the New Testament, you will notice that they both begin by addressing a specific group of exiles, people who have been scattered, people who have been dispersed. The technical term uh, in theology is the diaspora. It's a group of people dispersed from their home, living outside the homeland that they so much treasured. And so Peter and James are talking to these very people, um, you know, years down the road after what has happened here in the book of Acts in chapter 8. Um, I'm a hunter. I'm not a big hunter, but I like to hunt, to hunt with my dad in the fall. And so this quote by Chuck Swindoll caught my attention when he said that tracing the history of the church in the book of Acts is like tracking a wounded deer through the freshly fallen snow. Pools of blood mark the trail from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to Nero in Rome. So when you study the history of the church, really from, from the beginning of the church's existence all the way up until this point and beyond out until the time when Paul was, was martyred and further, you see these pools of blood at the hands of these people who are trying to stamp out Christianity from the beginning. So when we look at Acts chapter 8, we'll cover verses 1 through 4 under the first heading of the Exodus of the believers. We really could call it the eviction of the believers because they were evicted essentially from their homeland. But we will leave the, the heading as the Exodus of the believers. So let's go through the text together. We'll stop and, and, and make comment and application as we go. Verse 1 again says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. You remember, Saul was the character that was standing uh, at the top of what was likely a bank. He was standing there and they laid their garments at his feet and they were casting these massive stones on him until the breath was crushed out of Stephen. Paul was agreeing by, or Saul was agreeing by putting him to death. It says, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of where? Judea and Samaria. So up to this point, when we look at the persecution taking place among the church, it's largely focused against the apostles. It's the Sanhedrin uh, who keeps bringing in the apostles and, uh, and putting them on trial and beating them and things of that nature. But it's concentrated on the apostles and it's concentrated here in the city of Jerusalem. But here in chapter 8, the scripture tells us a, a great persecution. The, the Greek term is a mega or megas persecution a wave of persecution slams into the body of the church uh, very much kind of in a hurricane style. You know, we're, we're tracking Irma right now. And we're watching how Irma's, you know, making landfall and doing the damage that it's done. Uh, you know, across the track, it's gone. And when you look at what happens here in Acts chapter 8, this hurricane of persecution slams into the church. And everyone, except the group of church leaders, the apostles, were scattered into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. If you want to bring it into a kind of a common uh, vernacular today for us, imagine all of us living here in McDowell County 
and a wave of, of physical persecution breaks out against Christians. Let's say you're in your home and you're eating or you're watching your favorite news program at night, you know, or you're getting ready to get in your car and head away for your job that day, and, and an authority from uh, the, the Jewish religion shows up and, and pulls up in your car door and pulls you out of the car and says, excuse me, I need to ask you, are you a Christian? Well, yes, I am. Well, you're, you're coming with me. Where, where are we going? You're coming with me. And they put you in cuffs and they put you in the prison and they persecute you essentially because you hold a different belief. See, when I even say that, that's almost difficult for us to understand, isn't it? It's really almost difficult for us to wrap our minds around that we could be treated that way because we live where? In America. And we are largely, not completely, but largely protected from things like what happens here in chapter 8. I received an email from, from one of you. I, I opened it at 6-something the other morning on Thursday or Friday morning talking about a young man in a Muslim setting that had, had converted to Christianity and the students in his classroom took him out, or actually in the classroom rather, they beat him until he died because he made a decision to follow Jesus Christ in a Muslim context. That's not a statement against all Muslims. That's a statement against what was taking place in that classroom, how this one young man was being persecuted. The reality is this, those days may come in our country. We may be heading that direction. For us to think we're going to stay up under an umbrella of being protected as believers for all of our existence is just sheer ignorance. It's putting our head under a rock, sticking our head in the sand and saying, we'll never face those things. We're living in America. G.K. Chesterton said that one day there would be a group of people that would, he didn't specify what group, he's just saying a, a, a type of people that would argue with you for saying that a triangle is a three-sided figure. We're in that day. We are in that day. It's incredible how quickly Jesus' words come to roost for his followers. I want you to listen to this. This is in John, okay, when he's living. These things that are going through that we're talking about are in Acts. Listen to this. John chapter 15 and verse 20. Jesus says, if they persecuted you, I'm sorry, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, one chapter later, John 16, 2, they will ban you from the synagogues. Okay, that's happening right here in the book of Acts. If you're a believer and you're going to the synagogue, because that's kind of your place of worship at this point, and you're being kicked out because your Christian profession of faith, they have to look back and hear what Jesus said in John 16, 2. They will ban you from the synagogues. Listen to this. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's taking place right here in the book of Acts. One book later in the New Testament. That's exactly what Saul thought he was doing. He thought by dragging these people off and sending them to prison and having them killed, he thought that he's offering service to God because he's a zealous Jew. Verse 2 and 3 tell us that devout men buried Stephen. They mourned deeply over him. But Saul, however, was ravaging the church. Do you notice the language of contrast there? Devout men are burying Stephen. They're lamenting loudly over him. However, Saul was ravaging the church. He entered house after house, dragged off men and women, and put them into prison. I found it interesting that the contrast was going on. In these two verses, there's one group who's loudly wailing in grief over Stephen's murder. 
The, the scripture doesn't say that they're just kind of in a prayer circle holding hands and they're upset and they're passing the Kleenex box. The scripture actually tells us it indicates a public protest. They were loudly mourning and grieving and carrying on, publicly saying to the city, we do not approve, we do not accept, we are not pleased with what just happened to Stephen. And then what do we have Saul doing? Ravaging the church. You know what the word ravaging there indicates? It indicates the idea of a wild animal that has captured its prey and is tearing it apart limb from limb. That is essentially Saul's mission at this point in his life. He wants to rip the church apart at the seams and tear it to shreds. Chuck Swindoll gives an interesting comparison. Some of you will know this name, some will not. But Saul, he calls the Adolf Eichmann of the day. Anybody heard of Adolf Eichmann? Calls him the Adolf Eichmann of the day. If you don't know who Adolf Eichmann was, Adolf Eichmann was the guy that Hitler essentially put in charge of developing and facilitating a mass system of at first exporting Jews to these, these camps. But then when they couldn't no longer export them, they sent them off to the gas chambers to kill people. This one guy, Eichmann, was the guy that was put in charge of developing this systematic way to create this genocide situation to murder people. That's essentially what Swindoll says here. Because his hatred and his zeal for destroying the church ran that deep. But somehow, somehow, when we read the scripture, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turbulence, the mass exodus of hundreds, maybe a couple of, well, we know probably several thousand Christians at this point. In the midst of all that's going on, God's sovereign plan is prevailing. In fact, everything is happening exactly like Jesus said. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Don't miss this, okay? There's nothing sacred about the chapters and verses. Nothing. Those are added much later, but listen to this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Check. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check. And now... With the eviction and the exodus of the believers, where's the gospel headed? To, to Judea and to Samaria. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Interesting word, marturion. Okay, a, a plural word for martyrs. You will be my martyrs, you will be my witnesses that will speak the gospel to people everywhere you go first beginning here in Jerusalem and then out to Judea and Samaria. He said that in Acts 1.8. And then we get to Acts 8.1 and look at what's taking place. The reversal of everything that has taken place is incredible. We see in verses 4 through 8, the believers, instead of defecting and falling away, they became more faithful and they became more effective by carrying the gospel. In verses 4 through 8, we look at the second heading, the evangelization of the law. So we talked about the exodus of the believers. Now we come to the evangelization of the lost. So look at verse 4. It says, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed two different words, the Messiah to them. I love the way that Luke describes how the scattered church fled the city. I love the way that he describes it in the Greek text. He says this, they went on their ways with their tails tucked and avoiding the crowds and hiding in the shadows. 
Is that what he says? No. He says they went on their way preaching the word. Now, because of our idea of preaching, we picture a pulpit of some sort up on a raised platform with everyone looking forward to one individual who speaks for who knows how long. That's our modern context of, of preaching. That's not the way this word is used here. It would be easy for us to get the idea that as the disciples were going, remember, these are not the preachers. As the disciples are going, they stopped in for a pit stop at somebody's pulpit. That's not what Luke tells us. It says they went on their way preaching the word, but listen to the word they use in the Greek. It's the word euangelizo. It sounds like our word for what? Evangelize. He uses the word in the English to preach, but really the word in the Greek is euangelizo, to evangelize. And so as these people were scattered, nobody tucked their tails, as we're told. Nobody hung their heads. Nobody hid in the shadows. They took the gospel and they shared the good news. I love this when I read this this week. Listen to this. One scholar pointed out it wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the preachers who were the first ones to take the good news outside the city. It wasn't me. As a pastor, as a preacher, it wasn't me. You know who it was? It was you all. It was you all. It was the church folk, so to speak. It was the people in the pews that when they were scattered, they didn't tuck their gospel deep down in the bottom of their bag and say, boy, I hope nobody finds this. They carried it with them and they spoke it as they went. When I talk about personal evangelism, when I say those two words, personal evangelism, what happens in your heart? There's so many people, when I say those words, personal evangelism, there's a fear and an anxiety. And we break out in a sweat and we think, I don't know what to say. I left my track at home. I didn't take that class. I don't have that program. I didn't go to that seminar. I didn't go to that conference. I don't know what to say. I don't have a testimony. We say all of those things. I don't know if evangelism scares you to death or what, but listen, the people that were taking the new territory for Christ, it wasn't the apostles. They were holding down the fort in the city. It was the people in the pews that were effective for taking the gospel to places that these apostles may never, ever go. And so revival came to Samaria not because of the church leaders. Let me say that again. Revival went to Samaria not because the staff was out preaching sermons 24-7, 365. It happened because the church took seriously their mandate to take the gospel with them and to sprinkle it everywhere they went. Listen, I'm going to use a phrase that my evangelism professor uses. I think it's good for us to hear this word redeemed. All right. We talk about gossip a lot, right? Gossip's a bad thing. It destroys churches. Amen. But what does Alvin Reed tell us to do? Gossip the gospel. Gossip the gospel. You say, what does that mean? Murmur the gospel. As you go about, as you encounter a situation with someone, sprinkle it in. Apply it. All of us as sinners know how to talk about things we should not. Amen? Why do we not know how to talk about things that we should? I don't know what your reason is. I have a list of mine. I'll be honest. I'm as terrified sometimes in certain situations to speak the gospel as anybody else in this room. But we are told we're given a mandate to go boldly and to share this good news with the lost around us. I want you to listen to this. In a recent podcast episode, Tom Rainer, in his 
Rainer on Leadership podcast, which I would recommend everyone listen to, download, go to his blog. Tom Rainer, the president and CEO of Lifeway, said this. In many churches today, evangelism has completely fallen off the radars. There are many reasons for that, but one in particular, according to Rainer's research, is this. We are no longer as churches. We are no longer intentional, he says, about the discipline of personal evangelism. You hear that? We're no longer intentional about the discipline of personal evangelism. It is a discipline that we cultivate in the same way that if we want to be physically fit, do we just wake up one day having sat on our couch and just gorged ourselves on potato chips? Do we find ourselves physically fit at that point? No. Physical fitness is not an accident. Spiritual fitness is no accident. If I want to be spiritually fit, there are disciplines that I must engage in. And one of those, which is one of the quickest to be forgotten, is personal evangelism. Talking to people about the gospel. There's a quote that I want to address, and I don't want to get into you know, a lot with this, but there's a quote that someone attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, when necessary, or, or preach the gospel everywhere you go, and when necessary, use words. I understand the sentiment behind that, that our lives ought to show a gospel, but nowhere does Jesus say, zip it and just do nice things. Nowhere. As we do nice things, as we serve, as we encourage, as we love, as we put our arm around people and pray for them, we have an opportunity to say, you know what? Can I tell you why I'm doing this? I'll share a story with you. Um, and, and, and I've blown in the area of personal evangelism way more than I've been successful. But one story that stands out in my mind that just cracks me up is I was down in Durham. And I, was, I went into Walmart, the old Walmart there in Durham. And on my way out, there was a lady who was running the, the scan and go registers. You know, we have those now so that people don't have to interact. You know what I mean? That's really what it comes to. We have those now so that people don't have to interact. I use them all the time. Just, just saying... But I, I used this thing, and on my way out, this lady speaks to me, and I said, how you doing today? And she said, oh, I'm terrible. I'm hungry. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear about that. I said, when you get off work? Well, I don't get off for three or four more hours, whatever it was. So I said, well, all right. I said, well, uh, I, you, you have a good day. I'll be back to see you after a while. Okay, okay, all right. So I go out the door, and I ride down the street to a restaurant, and I grab a little box of, of, of chicken and a biscuit and a tea, and I come back. And I walk in the door, and the lady looks at me with this box of chicken, the biscuit, and the tea. And I hand it to her, and she said, hey, what's this? And I said, you said you were hungry. And she looked at me and busted up into the highest pitch cackle you've ever seen in your life. She just stood there and looked at it with this look of like, what in the world are you doing? And I said, can I tell you why I did this? And she said, you sure can. And so I took an opportunity just to nudge her toward Christ. I didn't preach the, the four spiritual laws. I didn't pull out a tract or anything like that. I didn't get her to sign a card or tell her she had to walk an aisle. I just simply said, let me tell you why I did this. And she started talking about her love for Christ. And me and this woman right here at the Scan and Go in Durham had this great conversation uh, over this box of chicken uh, that she was holding in her hand. But listen, if we're not intentional about personal evangelism, we will go the way of the majority of churches. You know what Rainer says? According to his research, some 93 to 94% of churches, that's research, statistically verifiable data, 93 to 94% of churches are not effectively evangelistic. When I was a kid, 
And I used to get a 93. You know what that meant? I made an A minus. That's good, right? It's bad when that's your number, when that's your rating, your statistic on personal evangelism. In other words, we're making an A minus at not sharing the gospel. Let that sink in. That's not good. But it's worth pointing this out. The early Christian believers were successful in their evangelistic efforts. How did they do it? Did they have curriculums? Did they have programs? Did they have manuals? Did they have seminars? Did they have conferences? Did they leave it to the professionals? No. Acts 1.8, what does it say? The influence, the power of the Holy Spirit. They went in the power of the Holy Spirit. And can I say something to you today to apply that? Please hear me. The Holy Spirit that lived in them is no different than the Holy Spirit that lives in you. It is the same Spirit of God that indwelt and inhabited, listen to me, and empowered them that can empower us to go from weak and fearful to bold and sharing the gospel in love. There's no magic bullet for evangelism. I've looked for them. Believe me. I've stood in Lifeway and combed through the books and looked at the tracks and thought, what can I do to get better at this? It's simple. Lean on the Holy Spirit. Trust in Him to help us effectively share the word. Look for opportunities to apply the gospel. Yesterday, I pulled out my phone. I was looking through Twitter. My evangelism professor, Dr. Reed, was playing golf. He's not a golfer. <laughs> you say, why was he playing golf? He was playing with two neighbors in his, in his neighborhood that were non-Christians. They were not of the, the faith. And he said, I'm going to play golf with some non-Christians today. About three and a half hours later, he tweeted something to the effect of, Terrible round of golf, great time making new friends. Why did he do it? To build bridges, to build relationships, just to share the gospel with those people. Go to verse 5. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Verse 5 includes a guy named Philip. At first, we could read this and say, oh, this must have been the Philip of the apostles. Remember, where were the apostles? In the city. This was not Philip the apostle. This was Philip the deacon. Who were the deacons? They were some of the Hellenistic Jews, some of the ones that had the mixture of the Jewish and the Gentile, okay? So this guy, Philip, understood because he was, was Gentile in some of his activities, but Jewish in his beliefs, he understood what it was to be looked down upon. He understood what it was to be ignored and neglected. See, the roots of racism ran deep between the Jews and the Samaritans, but Philip didn't hold to that belief. He didn't believe it at all. His life had so been changed by Jesus Christ, he was willing to go anywhere to talk to people about the gospel. Think about Jesus. Jesus sat down at a well in John chapter 4. And who did he have a conversation with? A Samaritan woman. Who did he heal in Luke chapter 17? A Samaritan leper. And who was the hero of the parable in Luke chapter 10? A Samaritan man. Jesus was clearly tearing down barriers by saying, there's no Jew and Gentile, there's no Samaritan or anything. Everyone belongs under Christ. And so when Philip received Christ as Savior, those dividing lines of hatred were destroyed. 
Verse 6 says he began preaching or proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, casting out demons. Scripture says they listened to his words. They saw the signs. There was great joy in that city. So a natural question is this. How did Philip, a deacon, partly Gentile in his activities and origin, how did Philip do all that superhuman stuff? What made him a successful evangelist? Did you know this is the only guy called an evangelist in Scripture? Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Philip the evangelist is the only guy in Scripture who's given this title. Did he go to seminary and get an MDiv? No. He was ministering out of the overflow of the Spirit in his life. But I think God also did something important we can't miss. God uniquely positioned him to be a catalyst for spiritual revival among the Samaritans. In a sense, he was just like them. He had been snubbed by the Jews. Remember the incident in Acts chapter 6 when some widows said, Hey, our group's getting overlooked. He was in that group that was being complained about. He understood the sting of neglect. God picked a guy that could connect with these Samaritans to do this work. And you know what I think God does today? I think he does the very same thing in our lives. There are people all around you, all around everyone in this room, that God has uniquely positioned you to reach them with the gospel. And if you don't open your mouth, God will raise up somebody else who will. But don't miss the blessing of sharing Christ with someone around you, even if you're afraid. Even if you are afraid. God puts people around us all the time who are waiting for us to speak the good news of the gospel into their lives. I shared Christ with a guy. I've shared this story before. I shared Christ with a guy in college that I waited an entire year to talk to him about the Lord, mostly out of fear, I'll be honest. I shared Christ with him one night. He called me and said, I want you to come over to my, my, my house he was renting. I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay. So I get over to his house that night. And he says, I want to talk to you about God. And immediately I was like, oh man, don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. God does the saving. Josh can't mess it up. I'm not that good. I'm not that bad. But he asked me, he begins to ask me about my faith in Christ. And so I shared with him how he could turn away from his sin and trust Jesus as his Savior and be cleansed of all his sin, wash away that sin, and he could come to God as now a child of his. He received Jesus in tears that night, a big, young, strong, strapping college man. And his question after he prayed to receive Christ was this, why didn't you tell me sooner? What do you say to that? I was afraid. I had no answer. What appeared to be the absolute worst moment in this church's young life became the very place that God began to work. John MacArthur says Satan's attempt to stamp out the church's fire merely scattered the embers and started new fires around the world. What does Romans 8.28 tell us? That God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Where does he work? In all things. Is Stephen's death an all things moment? Yes. Is there anything excluded from an all things moment? You may have heard that on 106.9 recently. No. God had a purpose for the persecution in Jerusalem. 
He had a purpose for scattering the believers out into the surrounding regions. And he had a purpose for sending Philip to Samaria to bring revival to people who might never otherwise hear the gospel. So I would sum it up like this. In all the bad that was swirling around the believers, God was in the middle of it all, working out his perfect plan. Let's pray together.